ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so last time we mentioned the hadith about the 70,000 who will enter paradise without accountability and without punishment. And we have the explanation of that hadith left to do, so that's where we'll begin with today. So it was the hadith of Hussein ibn Abdul Rahman, قال, كُنْتُ عِنْدَ سَعِيدِ بْنِ جُبَيْرِ فَقَالْ أَيُّكُمْ رَأَ الْكَوْكَبَ الَّذِينْ قَدَّ الْبَارِحَةِ in this hadith then, uh, Hussein ibn Abdul Rahman al-Sulami, who was one of the tabi'een, Hussein ibn Abdul Rahman al-Sulami, he was one of the tabi'een from the second generation. He says that he was sitting with Sa'id ibn Jubair, who was also from the major scholars of the tabi'een, Sa'id ibn Jubair from the major scholars of the tabi'een, and in fact he was from the students of Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhumah. He mentions, I was sitting with Sa'id ibn Jubair, and Sa'id ibn Jubair asked the question, أَيُّكُمْ رَأَ الْكَوْكَبَ الَّذِينْ قَدَّ الْبَارِحَةِ Who from amongst you saw the shooting star last night? So he was asking them this question. The ones who were sitting with him in his presence, he was asking them, who from amongst you saw that shooting star last night? So Hussein ibn Abdul Rahman, he says that he answered, Anna. He said that I saw it, me, I saw the star. However, he then adds on to that, أَمَا إِنِّي لَمْ أَكُنْ فِي الصَّلَاةِ أو فِي صَلَاةِ وَلَكِنِّي لُدِغْتِ He said, however, it is not because I was praying. Don't think that I saw the shooting star last night because I was awake due to praying. I wasn't actually praying. <coughs> Why did he mention that to them? Nobody had asked him why he was awake. They were just asking who saw the shooting star. He said, yes, I saw it. But then he explained to them, it's not because I was praying though. Why did he mention that? Nobody was asking about praying or not praying. Was it not the habit to pray for the Exactly. He didn't want them to assume that he'd been praying. He didn't want them to praise him for something he hadn't actually done. He hadn't done that. He didn't want any showing off from this. So he made it clear to them, he said, I saw the shooting star last night, but I wasn't awake because I was praying though. Meaning he doesn't want them to praise him or for them to think good of him. MashaAllah, he was staying up last night praying, that means... He doesn't want them to think that when he didn't do that. This was from their sincerity. 
This is the way that the Salaf they were. They didn't want to show off with their deeds, neither did they even want people to think they'd done something good when they hadn't done it. So he said to them, it wasn't because I was praying though. He didn't want anyone to think incorrectly he'd been up all night praying and that's why he saw the shooting star. So then he said to them, it's actually because I had been stung by something. He said, it's actually because I'd been stung by something, so I was awake because of that sting bite. So he didn't want any recommendation for himself. He didn't want to give himself self-recommendation, a tazkiyah for himself, by allowing the people to think he'd been praying. He told them, it wasn't because I was praying last night, it was because I'd been stung by something. And as a consequence of that bite, that sting, I was awake last night and I couldn't sleep. So then they said to him, فَمَا صَنَعْتَ So what did you do then? What did you do when you got stung by this poisonous animal, scorpion or whatever it may have been? Then what did you do? Because obviously if somebody gets stung by a poisonous animal, it's expected you're going to try and do something about it. You don't get stung by a poisonous animal and do nothing and just go to bed. It is expected you would take some course of action to try and cure yourself. So they said to him, what course of action did you take? What did you do then when you got stung by this poisonous animal? He said, Irtaqaytu. He said, I sought for someone to do ruqya on me. I sought for someone to do ruqya upon me. And the ruqya, as everybody knows, is the recitation the recitation that can be done upon somebody who has been afflicted by illness or by a sting, a poisonous sting of this nature like here now, then that type of individual, you can do the ruqya on that person, you can recite upon him, recite the Qur'an upon him. And this ruqya, it is a legislated affair which can aid a person and help cure an individual. If that person is upon iman, the one reciting it, and the one who it's being recited upon, both of them are upon iman and their trust and their dependence is in Allah. They are people of tawheed. The ruqya is done in the proper manner with clear, audible, understandable words the other conditions for the ruqya must be with clear words, understandable words, meanings that are correct and good. As for when people come and they do ruqya and they mumble things, that is incorrect. That is not the way to do ruqya. They come and mumble things that you can't even understand what they're saying, then it's not correct. That isn't how ruqya is done. Or they come and recite and they use certain words in their recitation which are not understood. Words that you don't know what their meanings are. Strange, weird words. Again, that ruqya is not correct. The ruqya must be with clear, understandable, audible words with the proper and correct meanings in accordance to tawheed. So that is something correct and it is something which can be done. The recitation of the Qur'an. The ruqya that is impermissible is the ruqya which has shirk within it, meanings of shirk within it, words that are used that opposed Tawheed, or it is done in a manner where we said it is mumbling and not understood, or words are used which are in opposition to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. 
That type of ruqya wouldn't be allowed. But the ruqya which is authentic, sincerely done with the Quran, authentic recitations, then it's permissible. And it can be used to cure illnesses, physical illnesses, like sting bites and other physical illnesses, or abstract, non-physical types of illnesses, i.e. illnesses of the heart, those types of affairs, they can also be cured with this ruqya. So, when he told them that I did the ruqya, I sought for someone to do the ruqya, they said to him, مَا حَمَلَكَ عَلَى هَذَا What is it that made you do that? Why did you decide after you'd been bitten by a poisonous animal that the course of action to do was to go and get ruqya done? Why? What made you do that? What made you decide to go and do ruqya? So then, they were now seeking the evidence from him. And this is the way of the Salaf. This is the Salafi methodology. That when it comes to any act of worship, anything with regards to the religion, then you seek clarification of the proof for it. The evidences, our religion is based upon proofs and evidences, not blindly following what an individual tells you to do, and it could be misguidance, it could be innovation, it could be shirk. Rather, we seek the proof and the evidence, and this is from the mannerisms of the salaf. So they said to him, what, what is it that made you do that? What's your evidence? Why? Why did you choose to do ruqya when you got bitten by the poisonous animal? So then he said, Hadithun, because of a hadith. He said, because of a hadith, Haddathanihi Shabi. He said, there's a hadith that a Shabi, Amir ibn Sharahil, one of the other great imams of the Tabi'een, he said, this imam of the tabi'een, a shabi, he narrated a hadith to me from the Prophet So they said, ma haddathakum? What did he narrate to you then? What is this particular hadith then that you used as a proof that you can do the ruqya? He said, haddathana an Burayda ibn al-Husayb. He said that Burayda ibn al-Husayb radiallahu anhu from the companions of the Prophet sallallahu he narrated to us that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said la ruqyata illa min aynin aw huma that there is no ruqya except from the evil eye and from the poisonous sting that there is no ruqya apart from the evil eye and from the poisonous sting. So that hadith would seem to be a very clear proof for what he did. He was in the situation of the poisonous sting. And the hadith is saying there is no ruqya except from evil eye and from poisonous stings. He was now in the situation of a poisonous sting. So the hadith applied to him. So he did ruqya. However, there's an issue with this now. The hadith says, there is no ruqya, la ruqyata. There is no ruqya, illa min ayn aw huma. Except from the evil eye and the poisonous sting. So it does not mean that you're not allowed to do ruqya for anything apart from those two things. That's what the hadith would seem to indicate. 
is ruqya only allowed from evil eye and from poisonous things and it's not allowed for anything else? So what does the hadith mean then? The hadith says there is no ruqya except from the evil eye and the poisonous thing. What's the translations they give you for the hadith? No ruqya or recourse for cure by spiritual means except for jealousy or um, scorpion sting. Except jealousy, i.e. the evil eye and the scorpion sting, i.e. a poisonous animal sting. So the hadith seems to indicate only the two of them. How do you explain it in that case if you're going to say ruqya is permissible as it is? For other than the evil eye and poisonous things. This hadith does not mean that there is only ruqya in these two things. The hadith actually means that the most effective ruqya is in these two things. That from all of the different types of things you could do ruqya for, for cure, the most effective that the ruqya will be is if you do it on someone with evil eye, the ruqya is very effective then. And if you do it for somebody with a poisonous thing, the ruqya is very effective then. The hadith means that in those two circumstances, the evil eye or poisonous things, then if you do ruqya, ruqya is the most effective then. As opposed to other things. You could have other illnesses and do the ruqya and it would be effective. But the most effect of ruqya is in evil eye cases and in poisonous thing cases. That's what this hadith indicates. And that is something known in the language. That is something known in the language, even in English. Even in English you may say something similar to this type of terminology, where somebody may say, regarding a particular car, they say the Mercedes-Benz, there is no car after the Mercedes-Benz. What does that mean? Does that mean that there is only one model of car on the face of the earth? That's just Mercedes-Benz? Or are there other cars? There are other cars. So what does he mean when he says there is no other car after Mercedes? What does it mean? What's he trying to say? There's nothing better. That phrase in English when you say it like that, it means there's nothing better. He's saying that's the best. You can't get anything else. They're all useless, the rest of them. There is no other car after Mercedes. It doesn't literally mean there are no other models. That the only car on the face of the world everywhere is just Mercedes. It doesn't mean that. It just means that the best in his opinion is the Mercedes when he phrases it like that. And this is similar. That's a similar example to this where it says, There is no ruqya except in evil eye and the poisonous thing. I.e. the best ruqya, the most effective ruqya is in the poison, uh, the uh, evil eye and the poisonous thing. So he narrated that hadith to them. And he said to them, because of this particular hadith I've heard, I did the ruqya when I was stung by the poisonous animal. So then, they said to him, قَدْ أَحْسَنَ مَنْ انْتَهَى إِلَى مَا سَمِعْ That somebody who stops at the evidences they heard, then he has done good. You have done good that you have implemented and practiced the evidence you've heard, and you've stopped yourself at the evidence. The evidence you've narrated to us, it clearly indicates a poisonous thing, you should do the ruqya. So that's good, that you have taken the evidence, and you have implemented the evidence, the proof that you had. And this is again from the mannerisms of the salaf. From the mannerisms of the salaf, that they clung onto the evidences, they stuck to the evidences, So when they heard him give them the evidence to what he did, a clear hadith, 
They said, excellent, it's good that you used the evidence and you stuck to the evidence. That is praiseworthy. That is the way that it should be. If you know an evidence, a proof or something, then you stick to that and you do what that evidence and proof tells you to do. From the Qur'an and the authentic sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. So they praised him. They said, that's good. They praised him for having done that. For having not followed any misguidance or any of his desires or anything made up, but instead having stuck to the evidence and the proof that he'd been given, and therefore done the ruqya based upon what he'd heard. But then they said to him, they said, however, despite it being good that you stuck to the evidence you heard, however, they said to him, there is another evidence actually that you should be aware of. There is something else you should be aware of. Walakin, حَدَّثَنَا ibn Abbas. They said, Ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhuma narrated to us. عَنِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ أَنَّهُ قَالَ from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, This was from the miracles of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that he was shown all of the previous nations. The previous nations, the nation of Nuh alayhi salam, the nation of Musa alayhi salam, he was shown all of those previous nations. And this is from the miracles of the Prophet ﷺ. Some of the scholars, they say that was on the night of Al-Isra Al-Mi'raj. Some of the scholars, they say that it was on the night of Al-Isra Al-Mi'raj when the Prophet ﷺ was shown all of the previous nations. The nation and the people of Musa ﷺ, the nation and the people of Isa ﷺ, etc. He was shown the previous nations. So when he was shown those previous nations, the Prophet ﷺ says, فَرَأَيْتُ النَّبِيُّ وَمَعَهُ الرَّهْدِ He says, I saw one Prophet, and he didn't have hardly any people. He only had a rahat, meaning he only had a group of people, several people between three and ten. Several, six, seven, eight, nine, just a handful of people, that's it. Meaning this particular Prophet... He had given da'wah to his people all his life. He had called to the message that Allah had revealed to him. He had called and given da'wah to the people to tawheed. But only a handful of them had followed this particular Prophet. So the Prophet ﷺ said, I saw one Prophet and he only had a handful of people with him. His followers were only a handful. Nobody else had agreed and followed the message of tawheed from him. Then he says, Then the Prophet says, I also then saw another Prophet, and he only had one or two people with him. One or two, that's it. From all of the people that he'd given da'wah to, he had called them to Tawheed. Nobody had accepted the message, nobody had believed, nobody had accepted that and been upon Iman except one or just two people, that's it. Then the Prophet ﷺ says, That I saw one Prophet and he didn't have a single person with him. He didn't have a single person. So that means, فِيهِ مِنَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ مَنْ كَذَّبَهُ قَوْمُهُ كُلُّهُمْ 
there are some of the prophets who were denied by all of their people. All of the people they were sent to, they rejected them. Not a single one accepted the message of Tawheed from them. So this indicates, the Shaykh says, a very important principle, which is that some people, they come to you now and they use the argument that the majority of people are with them. They say, you lot, there's just a few of you. As for us, we have a huge masjid. We have a thousand people every Jum'ah. We have so many people with us in our congregation. How do you think you lot are right and we're all wrong? This is what they'll say. They'll say that when it comes to the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ. They'll say millions of people across the world. Look at the news, how many countries are celebrating the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ. How many millions of people are doing it. You think you few people are right telling us it's a bid'ah? So then we tell them, this argument of yours is false. Trying to use numbers to prove that you're correct is actually incorrect. That is not a proof to use. How do we know? Because if numbers was a proof, that whoever's got the most people with them, they are the ones on the truth. If that was the case, then what are you going to say about these prophets? One prophet had nobody with him. All of his people opposed him. So who were the majority? The prophet or the people? Those people were the majority. They all opposed their prophet. So were they all right or was the prophet right? The prophet was still right. The other prophet had just one or two people with him. The majority rejected them. So were the majority right or those one or two with the prophet? The one or two with the prophet. So that means that the majority isn't a proof. If the majority happens to be from Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, Alhamdulillah, it's good. But that in of itself is not a proof upon the truth of something. So even if the majority of them, they come and they say, we are the large numbers, and you people have nothing, hardly anything. Then tell them, your numbers are not a proof. Because in this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ says he saw some prophets, they hardly had anybody with them. One person, two people, no people, seven, eight people. Everybody else had opposed them. But everybody else, all of that majority, they were wrong. And the Prophet and those one or two who followed him were right. So the truth is not judged by the numbers. So, then the Prophet ﷺ says, فَنَذَرْتُ فَإِذَا سَوَادٌ عَظِيمٌ He says, I looked after that and there was a large quantity of people. A large mass of people. فَذَنَنْتُ أَنَّهُمْ أُمَّتِي The Prophet ﷺ says, So I thought that this must be my ummah. The ummah of the Prophet ﷺ, a large number of Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he saw that large group, he thought maybe that's my ummah. But then it was said to him, فَقِيلَ لِي It was said to the Prophet ﷺ, هَذَا مُوسَى وَقَوْمُهُ This is Musa السلام, and his ummah. So that means there were many followers of Musa السلام, There were many followers of Musa السلام, because the Prophet ﷺ saw in this narration, that Musa alayhi salam had a large ummah behind him. 
Then after that, the Prophet ﷺ says, فَنَذَرْتُ فَإِذَا سَوَادٌ عَظِيمٌ I looked, and there was another large mass of people. فَقِيلَ لِي And then it was said to me, هَذِهِ أُمَّتُكَ This is your ummah. This large group of people, it was said to the Prophet ﷺ, they are your ummah. فَقِيلَ لِي هَذِهِ أُمَّتُكَ So it was said to the Prophet ﷺ that this is your ummah. وَمَعَهُمْ And with them, within this ummah of yours, سَبْعُونَ أَلْفًا يَدْخُلُونَ الْجَنَّةِ بِغَيْرِ حِسَابِ وَلَا عَذَابِ There are 70,000 who will enter paradise from this ummah of yours. Who will enter paradise without any accountability, without any punishment, they will enter paradise. 70,000 of them from this ummah of yours. As Shaykh al Fawzan says, As Sab'oon al Alf Ha'ula min ummati Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yadkhuluna al Jannah bila hisab wa la adab. Wa hadha fadlun azim. Wal baqiyya min al khalaiq tuhasab. منهم من يحاصب حسابا يسيرا ومنهم من يناقش الحساب واختلف العلماء في الكفار هل يحاصبون هل يحاصبون أو يدخلون النار بدون حساب. So it was said to the Prophet ﷺ that seventy thousand from this ummah of yours they will enter without any accountability or punishment and this is a great virtue from Allah. A great blessing from Allah that 70,000 people of this ummah will enter without any punishment, without any accountability. As for the remainder of the people, then they will be given an accountability on that day. Some people, their accountability will be easy. And some people, their accountability will be difficult and scrutinized. Then after the Prophet ﷺ told that part of the hadith to the companions... That there were 70,000 who are going to enter without any accountability to paradise. After that, the Prophet ﷺ got up and left. The Prophet ﷺ got up and he went into his house. So the people, they started debating over who those 70,000 are. Who are these 70,000 from the Ummah of the Prophet ﷺ who will enter paradise without any accountability and without any punishment? They started to debate because the Prophet ﷺ hadn't told them who they are. He had just told them there's 70,000. Then he got up and left. So they were left now discussing and debating who could these 70,000 be. And that's because of their desire for goodness. They wanted to know who are these 70,000, what are the characteristics of these 70,000, so that maybe they could try to be from them. They wanted to know from the characteristics and the virtues of these 70,000, so that they could practice that. So they were discussing, who is it that these 70,000 could be? فَقَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ So some of them said, فَلَعَلَّهُمُ الَّذِينَ صَحِبُوا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ Maybe they are the ones who were the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. Some of them said maybe they are the companions 
of the Prophet ﷺ. Because the companions we know of the great virtue they have, Allah mentions in the Qur'an, that they are pleased with him and Allah is pleased with them. Allah is pleased with them and they are pleased with Allah. They are pleased, Allah is pleased with them and their uh, nobility and Allah chose them to be the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. And they entered into Islam and they were alongside the Prophet ﷺ. They saw the revelation coming down, they made the hijrah, the early companions. They fought with the Prophet ﷺ. All of these great virtues uh, of the companions and what they did in the spreading of Islam... So they have great virtues. And the Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith, لا تصبوا أصحابي Do not speak bad about my companions. And that is the way of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. We do not speak bad of the companions. We do not mention any shortcomings of the companions. That is not our way. We speak good of the companions. So you see the misguidance of these foolish individuals from Al-Maghrib Institute and those types of places. When they come and they start mentioning the mistakes of the companions and the errors of the companions, and they start mentioning all types of shortcomings to the companions, that is from their misguidance and their ignorance and their lack of understanding of this religion. So we do not speak bad of the companions. That's why their companions, they said, maybe the 70,000 are the companions. But some of them said, Maybe they are the ones who were born as Muslims and they never committed shirk during their life. Because we know that the greatest sin is shirk. Allah does not forgive that a person commits shirk and dies upon it. So they said maybe it could be they are the ones who were born as Muslims and they lived their whole lives on Tawheed and they never committed any shirk. So they were discussing these possibilities as to who they could be. Then the Prophet ﷺ came out. فَخَرَجَ عَلَيْهِمْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ فَأَخْبَرُوهُ Then the Prophet ﷺ, he came out and they told him. They told him what they were discussing. فقال, so the Prophet ﷺ said, هُمُ الَّذِينَ لَا يَسْتَرْقُونَ They are the ones who do not seek ruqya. They do not seek ruqya. They do not seek or try to find, request someone to come and do the ruqya on them. Why? لِأَنَّ طَلَبَ الرُّقْيَا مِنَ النَّاسِ سُؤَالٌ لِلْمَخْلُوقِ وَالسُؤَالُ لِلْمَخْلُوقِ فِيهِ ذِلَّهِ Because having to go and ask people to do ruqya on you, it's like you're lowering yourself. And you have to ask the people to come and help you. And that's not something good. To have to ask people and to have to ask for favors and to ask other people and to rely on them to come and do the ruqya on you. That isn't something which is good. That is something which is somewhat humiliating for a person to have to go out there and ask other people to come and help him and to come to his home and to do ruqya on him. It isn't something suitable. It's better that a person can be self-sufficient that he doesn't have to rely on other people. He doesn't have to rely on somebody else to come and have to do ruqya on him. Instead, they put their trust and their dependence in Allah. They recite the Qur'an, they make the du'as, they pray. They do their worship to Allah, they put their dependence and their trust into Allah. And that is from the perfection of their tawheed. 
It is from the perfection of their tawheed that they do that. To the extent it's even mentioned that the companions, if they dropped something, they wouldn't even ask anybody to come pick it up for them. They'd get up themselves and pick it up. If they were on their riding animal, for example, on the horse and they dropped the stick, they wouldn't ask somebody pass it to me. They'd get it down and get it themselves. To avoid having to ask other people for favors. To suffice themselves and to do things themselves. So that is what's befitting and it's not befitting to have to ask other people for these affairs. Ruqya though, it must be understood if a person does ruqya to himself. Is that permissible or not? To do ruqya on yourself. Permissible. It is permissible to do ruqya upon yourself. No doubt. What about seeking ruqya from other people? Again, there's different circumstances. Maybe somebody goes and finds someone to do ruqya for you on your behalf. Or maybe somebody comes and just offers to do ruqya on you. Or somebody comes and offers to do the ruqya on you, but you refuse maybe sometimes. You may refuse to accept that. So here this ruqya could be different circumstances, in different situations. Somebody comes and offers to do it on you, or someone else organizes it and brings someone to do ruqya on you. There's different aspects to this ruqya. In those types of circumstances, then it's acceptable. There's no issue. There's no issue within that. But the issue that some of the scholars they mention is when a person, he becomes weakened and it's as if he almost loses his trust and his dependence in Allah or it becomes weak. So he starts to have to depend on other people. He starts to rely on other people. He thinks it's just about finding someone to do ruqya on him. And particularly if they then start to put their trust in that person, the one who's doing the ruqya, instead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then they are falling into things which are impermissible. So here generally it's mentioned that they don't go out there seeking the ruqya. Rather they try to suffice themselves, they put their trust and their dependence in Allah. And they don't go out there asking the people everywhere left and right for someone to come and do ruqya on them. It's also mentioned another one of the characteristics of the 70,000, la yaktabun. That they do not do cauterization. They do not ask anybody to do the cauterization on them. Cauterization is if you, when you have the hot metal rod, when you put the metal rod into the hot coals and it comes out, the tip of the metal rod is boiling hot. Then you put it on your skin and it burns the skin. That is cauterization. And it's a medical treatment. It can be used if, you're, uh, if you have a gash and blood is coming out and you can't stop it. That cauterization, it blocks up. It blocks up the, the open wound. So they used to use that cauterization to block up the open wounds. Uh, so this is a type of treatment. They used to use it as a type of treatment. However, this is not something which is recommended and it is not something which is befitting to do. It is makroh. Because that treatment, even though it might stop the bleeding, it is clearly something which causes harm to the person and is clearly going to leave a scar. So it leaves problems. It's not a cure which is straightforward. It causes harm to the person and leaves scars behind after that. So it's not something which is recommended to do. It's something makruh. So this hadith, it says that you shouldn't do the cauterization. 
And that was something they used to use before in the olden times in battles, etc. The cauterization to stop the bleeding. So it was mentioned here in this hadith that you shouldn't do that either. The third thing, it is permissible though, it is permissible. But it isn't something recommended, it's like makruh, you could say. The third thing is la yatayyaruna, that they do not believe in omens. They do not believe in omens, bad luck and good luck. When you talk about, for example, Friday the 13th, uh, walking under a ladder, the black cat, smashing a mirror, all those types of things. All these omens, they're impermissible, nothing to do with Islam. Superstitions and omens. In the olden days, they used to throw pebbles into a tree. And the birds that were sitting in the tree, obviously they would fly out of the tree when you throw the pebble. But if they flew out to the right hand side, they would say that's optimistic, that, that's a good sign, that's good luck. But if you throw the pebble and the birds fly out from the left side of the tree, they say that's bad luck. That's it, today don't go out, stay in your homes today. We threw the pebble, they flew out from the left side, it must be bad luck today. These types of superstitions and omens and all of that which is linked to this type of thing, it is impermissible for a Muslim to engage in. They are haram. These superstitions and these omens and good luck and bad luck, even reading your star signs, all of these types of things are impermissible. So one of the characteristics of the 70,000 is that they do not engage in any of that nonsense of superstitions and omens and any of that type of good luck, bad luck, charms, etc. That is the characteristics of those 70,000. Meaning they leave all of these types of things and they put their trust in Allah. No superstitions or bad luck, they put their trust in Allah. They don't seek ruqya from people, they put their trust in Allah. They don't do the cauterization and those types of cures. They use other forms that are uh, not harmful and painful, etc. So these are the characteristics mentioned of the 70,000 who will enter without accountability. When the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that, one of the companions, Ukkasha ibn Muhsin, he got up and he said, uh, and he was from the companions, from the early companions, uh, he was in the battle of Badr and other battles with the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, and he got up then and said to the Prophet ﷺ, make dua to Allah that I'm from those types of people. And the Prophet ﷺ said, anta minhum, you are from them. So he was from those 70,000. Then another person got up, thumma qama rajulun akhar faqal. Another person got up and he said, Allah minhum. He said to the Prophet ﷺ, make dua Allah makes me from them too. But the Prophet said to the second one, Sabaqaka biha ukkasha. That ukkasha already got there ahead of you. So the second person wasn't from the 70,000. But the Prophet didn't want to be harsh. He didn't want to say to him, No, you're not from them. So instead he said to him, Ukkasha already beat you to it. To phrase it in a better manner. This was from the mannerisms of the Prophet. From the mannerisms of the Prophet, he didn't want to say to the second man, Actually, you're not from them. Instead he said to him, Ukash has beaten you to it. So the second man understood that he's not. But it was phrased in a manner with gentleness and kindness from the Prophet ﷺ. And this was from his mannerisms. So that is the hadith, which is the uh, final hadith in this chapter about actualizing tawheed. What we understand from that therefore is, that a person who wants to perfect his tawheed, a person who wants to actualize his tawheed and complete his tawheed, that it must be with complete dependence and trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
self-sufficing or being self-sufficient from the people and not having to ask the people and go to the people. But you put your trust in Allah and you perform your obedience and your worship to Allah with that sincerity, with that hope, love, fear in Allah. And that is what perfects the tawheed of a person as opposed to those who are weak in their trust and dependence in Allah. So that is where we'll conclude today's chapter. And the next chapter, inshallah ta'ala, will now be after Ramadan. Next week now, Ramadan will begin. So the lessons will be postponed for four weeks. And then the first Sunday after Ramadan, after Eid, inshallah, we'll be back and we'll start again. So that'll be maybe the first week of August, roughly. Roughly the first week of August. Of August. After Eid, the first weekend, the first Sunday after Eid, inshallah, we'll start again and we'll carry on with the rest of these chapters. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. There are some narrations which say that it's actually more than 70,000. There are some narrations that say it's actually more than 70,000. So it is not restricted to just 70,000. There are narrations that say that every person will then have additional people with him and they are authentic narrations. So that would indicate that actually the figure is bigger than 70,000. It is a restricted number still, but it's bigger than 70,000 as some of the narrations indicate. So we leave it there, and inshallah ta'ala will begin again after Ramadan.